Hello, everybody. Uh, tonight, I have been charged uh, by our hosts with trying to explain, and I quote, why the political, media, legal and academic elite don't get it, which I took to mean the Australian political um, elite, really. It's a very good question. Given that I have spent almost half of my uh, entire nearly 50 years living in what uh, Hillary would call hardcore deplorables territory, and the other half of it um, living and working amongst so-called elites um, in Phillips Street in the CBD and in living in the Principality of Wentworth, <laughs> I suppose I'm as well qualified as anyone to offer an uh, offer a proper an answer. It's also possible I'm confused, but here goes. If I had to give a one-word answer as to why the elite don't get it, don't get Trump or Brexit for that matter, it would be values. Bill Clinton's 1992 adage that it's the economy stupid, or the Australian variation, it's all about the hip pocket, is still being rolled out. My co-panellist almost just did it, um, even post-Trump, by politicians and commentators. Little wonder it's proved a very useful axiom for, to justify pork barrelling around election time. Yes, economic circumstances can and will determine the outcome of an election. We should never write off the hip pocket. But it is misguided, I think, going forward to think that it's all about money. Middle England knew that there might be a cost to getting out of uh, the EU, but they wanted, they wanted to get out anyway. They wanted their country back, they wanted to reclaim their institutions, and they were prepared to pay for it. No, there's a new game in town, I think, and it's not just the economy, stupid, it's values. That's why the elite don't get it. It's a case of fundamentally different values and priorities driven in huge part by where people live, how they spend their work at their time at work and play. And that ultimately is the thing that drives our worldviews. Those worldviews have been really diverging, I believe, in the last decade or so. When I put this to a senior liberal last weekend, he said, well, there's always been a difference between the outer suburbs and the regions and the rest. True, but I don't agree with the suggestion that there's nothing particularly new going on. Big slabs of the media, politics on both sides, the academy, which has been off the reservation for a long time, the professions, at least in the CBD, and let's say it, some, big, some in big business, are now so far removed from the worldviews of ordinary people, their fellow citizens, whether in the UK, USA, or here in Australia, that it's true. They just don't get it. If we're in the business of looking into a crystal ball, we need to understand what is driving the disruption. We know that many who voted for Trump neither liked nor admired him. But it doesn't matter. If not Trump, it would have been someone else in time, I believe. But on this occasion, Trump won because, not because it was him, but because he was up against Hillary, the most obscenely establishment person to have ever run for the office of president. At its simplest, Trump is the manifestation of the rejection by a lot of clear-thinking, common-sense people of politics as usual. And Hillary was the embodiment of politics as usual. I'm not obviously the first to say that. Why are the people 
but not so much the establishment, rejecting politics as usual? Is it the spin, the broken promises, the talking points and slogans, the leaking, the annual entitlements rorts, the designer gear, the white cars? I hear a hard head in my ear. Louise, this is politics. Politicians have long been on the nose. They've been spinning for millennia. John Howard lost a few ministers to travel rorts in his first term, and white cars have been around for decades. That is true, but it's worse because the behaviour is worse on both sides. The lack of respect for the office of Prime Minister, five in seven years, the appalling treatment of Prime Ministers while in office and then when they leave office. The now accepted idea that we in Australia are in perpetual campaign mode. The obsession with polls and polling, the abject lack of courage and authenticity, the obscene increase in the numbers of advisers and their, influences, and their influence and the, the pervasive impact or influence of vested interests. No one likes any of this, but ordinary people hate it more because it does not accord with the way they live their lives. I can expand upon that in Q&A if you like, if you want an explanation. Add to this the values problem. Identity outrage and victim politics has been embraced by Labor and a number of progressive Liberals in a pretty big way. Many ordinary Australians think it is inappropriate, to say the least, that we are teaching kids in schools that it is perfectly normal to think you might be a boy if you're a girl, or vice versa. Or that it's perfectly standard to be sexually active with multiple partners in your early teens. They shake their heads when students who make a silly, bolshy remark on, on Facebook or a political cartoonist gets taken to court for being racist. They scratch their heads when a prosecutor who is investigated by a corruption body, a corruption body, for allegedly suggesting how an acquaintance might avoid a, a breathalyzer test, when avoiding breathalyzer tests is a national pastime. <laughs> who hasn't taken an alternative route home <laughs> after one drink too many? Not me, but <laughs> I know a lot of you have. <laughs> These things are nuts and totally at odds with the common sense values of middle Australia. Possibly the most defining difference though between insiders and outsiders here and around the world we now know is their attitudes towards their country. In the suburbs and the regions in Australia, people are proud to be Australian. They love Australia Day and they love Anzac Day even more. They think it is important to vet all, all immigrants. They don't like immigrants coming here to go on welfare and they think it's 100% fair for immigrants to integrate. After all, that's what many of them did and that is what made modern Australia. These are the views of the mainstream right throughout the Western world. Yet, Big swathes of those who inhabit and control our institutions, journalists, CEOs, lawyers, academics and politicians in both major parties think that these attitudes are base and embarrassing. They would not be seen dead waving a flag and they think the world's problems can be solved by opening all borders. More than that, and this is where it really bites, I believe, and is starting to bite here, many are comfortable many of these establishment people are quite comfortable with laws or norms that result in their values being imposed on their fellow citizens. 
via 18C, for example, or via immigrant ghettos in other people's suburbs. They have no problem at all when it suits them, curtailing the freedoms that our founders did assume, that were, that were axiomatic, freedom of speech, of press, fair trial, property rights and religious freedom. They have no problem with those being curtailed in favour of their values. That, I believe, not the economy, was the singular characteristic that propelled Trump. His willingness to take this on in a way that was unprecedented, as Tom has said, that a politician from a mainstream party could simply respond to negative press from the New York Times with hashtag failing New York Times <laughs> was stunning. <laughs> of course, courage, that vital missing ingredient from politics as usual, was easy for Trump because he had absolutely nothing to lose. He was already stupendously wealthy. He was already mocked and pilloried by the establishment prior to even running for president. He had nothing to lose. The big question for us is, can someone outside the mainstream parties emerge as a great new leader? My thesis, and I'm sorry to disappoint the revolutionaries rooting for a cataclysmic Trump event in Australia, is that the Trump phenomenon is already happening here and in the foreseeable future, it's going to be more of the same slow burn, but with an acceleration in the regions and the outer suburbs. Our innate conservatism, despite some people liking Trump and Pauline, for example, but our innate conservatism, compulsory preferential voting, which ain't going anywhere anytime soon, and the monumental physical and human campaign infrastructure required in every House of Reps seat, which I have been directly involved with for two uh, campaigns now. That leads me to the conclusion that it's unlikely, at least in the short term. We will get some serious one nation disruption in conservative states, but it won't change things overnight. We will get more Clives, more shooters and fishers. We might get a Corey. Absent the majors coming to their senses, we will get more minority governments and more gridlock in the Senate, which is tragic. What of the major parties? Well, we would do well to remember that the Donald launched himself from within the Republican Party. He was a transplant, a seriously foreign body that nearly got rejected. <laughs> but he survived and emerged victorious from within a mainstream party. The prospect of one of the major parties in Australia now producing a parliamentary leader who is not put there by backroom deals, who will challenge his or own party room and bring entitlements into line with community expectations and stand up to vested interests is very remote. Yet this is, this is what is required to restore faith. There's another huge impediment and that is Westminster. I was reminded recently, recently that Jim Spiegelman used to have a wonderful few lines in a, his stump speech when he admitted new solicitors to the Supreme Court. It said, it, or it went, we Australians like to think of this as a young country. Indeed, the second line of our national anthem is that we are young and free. But when it comes to basic mechanisms of government, the rule of law and parliamentary democracy, this is an old country. On that measure, we are older and more evolved than the USA. It also makes us more immune to political disruption. Responsible government is a serious bulwark against populism. The requirement that the head of state, be it a monarch or not, 
by convention exercises no political power, that the head of government is a member of parliament, that he or she leads the executive council, which is entirely by those who sit in parliament, and is merely a first among equals, that the executive has both individual and collective responsibilities to the parliament and to the cabinet, to each other. These things evolved, not by accident, but over centuries, so that Westminster is a serious break on untrammelled executive or personal power. It is a genius system of ensuring that no individual gets too much ahead of themselves. It is a strength in that it's conducive to stability, no matter what the battering. It is a weakness in that there is a practical, a very real practical limit to what leaders can do. Pressure in the system, as we have now, I believe, can only be relieved through elections which is not that helpful when both major parties are beset by the same structural and cultural problems. It's very hard, therefore, both in theory and practice, for populism to flourish in an Australian context, I believe, other than on the fringes. However, the little bit of Washington that we inherited from the USA, that unrepresentative swill that is the Senate, is at the moment counteracting the stability that is inherent in Westminster. The Senate is now operating in a way entirely removed from what was intended. Governments simply cannot execute their mandates. To be fair to the politicians, this has become such a serious structural impediment that it probably is the number one factor in what is now, without doubt, a crisis in our democracy. I might add, during the convention debates, some of our founders foreshadowed that this would happen. They lost, they lost the debate. If I were a revolutionary, I might posture that the Trump machine is about to arrive on our shores, that the establishment is so removed from, uh, from the people that a great new leader can, must and will save us. But I'm not a revolutionary, uh, partly because history has shown us that revolutions usually end in overreach and tears. And anyway, I personally don't hanker for a Trump in Australia. I want us instead to fix our problems, particularly when the solutions are staring at us in the face. If the two major parties had the slightest motivation to put the national interest above their own, they would embark on bipartisan efforts for sensible constitutional change. It would be amazing what they could achieve if they got together and ran a campaign together. Those, those changes might be lengthening our parliamentary terms, and the mooted Section 57 amendment to enable joint sittings to address parliamentary gridlock. These would provide much needed, uh, much needed structural circuit breakers and help governments to govern. The majors also need to embark on genuine initiatives for, mem for massive membership drives so they can once again start connecting with real people in real communities. That's going to be hard because at the moment they're not connecting at all with real people in real communities. So going out to the people where I live in Goulburn and trying to get members in will be hard. But they have no choice. They will not survive in the long term, in the very long term, if they don't do it. In New South Wales, where the Liberal Party is at breaking point, unless we give power to the members, real people in real communities, our members and supporters in the regions and the outer suburbs will desert us in droves. We would also do well to do or think about uh, what others have done, give members a say, a say at least, in electing parliamentary leaders. 
This would reduce the influence of factions, stop the internationally embarrassing leadership changes, but more importantly, invest the parliamentary leader with democratic legitimacy and authority. The crisis of our, in our democracy is of our own making because the major parties, especially since 2007, have been mired in self-interest, self-immolation, and have been out to lunch with everyone but Middle Australia. <laughs> Who wouldn't have time, in any event, for lunch? It has taken two major disruptions on the other side of the world to jolt them, and now they are, as we've all seen it lately, scrambling towards the bush. Whether the animal spirits that have been unleashed by Brexit and Trump will be enough to finally force the necessary structural and cultural change that is urgently needed to make our little big country start to function again is an open question. At the end of the day, though, we are back, back to the beginning. It is all about values. Thank you.